From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. It's the middle of October, and by now, you've no doubt seen the Pink Ribbon Campaign signaling its Breast Cancer Awareness Month. On today's program, we'll learn more about reconstruction surgery after breast cancer treatment from a Mayo Clinic expert. If you have enough tissue, meaning fat and skin and muscle in another location, such as your abdomen or your tummy, that can be moved to create a breast. We leave it connected to its blood supply and we're moving the tissue to another location to create the breast. Also, the importance of heart care for breast cancer patients. And breast cancer in men. All that along with a health minute from Vivian Williams right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Over 250,000 women are diagnosed with breast cancer every year in the United States. And over the last couple of decades, even as cancer treatments have become targeted and better, many women are choosing to have a mastectomy as their treatment for breast cancer as opposed to, let's say, lumpectomy and radiation. And close to half of those women who undergo mastectomy have reconstruction. Joining us in studio to talk about breast implants and other reconstructive uh, reconstruction reconstructive options, I was going to combine those into one word, <laughs> is Mayo Clinic Jacksonville Plastic and Reconstructive Surgeon, Dr. Sarv Tarkanda. Welcome to Minnesota and welcome to the welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a great uh, time to be here and I'm <laughs> glad to be back in Rochester. So it's been a long time uh, since I have seen you. You were uh, a resident here at Mayo. Yeah, it's been about uh, 25 years since I finished. And now you're on the, the staff at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville. Yes, sir. It's been 20 years there, and it's been a good uh, 20 years so far. You know, we want to talk about reconstructive options following mastectomy. But before we do that, because it's been in the news so much lately, uh, we're going to talk about implants. And the uh, the news has been that there's been a recall for uh, some type of breast implants. What's your take on that? So the current recall and controversy surrounding implants is the textured implants and their association with ALCL, anaplastic large cell lymphoma. Now, so what is ALCL? ALCL is a rare but treatable form of T-cell lymphoma that develops around breast implants. Now, that should not be confused with any type of lymphoma that develops within the breast because it is not a breast cancer. It is specifically related to the implant and the capsule that surrounds the implant. In your opinion, was it a good idea to have them recalled? And these are the textured ones. And is it one? were they all made by one manufacturer or all textured implants have been recalled? So there's not been a true recall of these implants, but there has been a voluntary recall of one manufacturer who has been represented highly in that textured implant uh, controversy. Uh, the controversy surrounds the amount of texturing on the surface of the implant, whether it's a saline implant or a silicone implant. The greater the texture, the greater incidence and risk we see of ALCL. Yes, that That's sounds just confusing. so unusual. It is unusual. Do you think that women who have those particular implants should have them removed? 
So the current FDA recommendations and our professional societies have not changed their stance on having these removed, but close annual follow-up just like we normally do. So if you have implants in, the normal follow-up is annual follow-ups, mammograms, self-monthly breast exams. If there is a change, what that change may be, change in size, shape, feel, or increase in fluid around the implant, you need to get evaluated by your plastic surgeon. And the other thing is in your arm, uh, in your axilla, your armpit, you feel for lymph nodes if you felt a lump up in your in your axilla? Yeah, anytime you feel a lump or a mass within the breast tissue or under your arm, as you stated, yes, it's, it's you need to get that checked out. Are they leaking? Is that, what, is that what's causing the trouble? No, uh, this is actually a reaction of the capsule to the implant. Oh, my and goodness. We don't know if it's just the texture because it doesn't make sense that a rough texture would incite a cancerous process. But there is some thought process that may lead to increased bacteria that can adhere to the implant and increased inflammation that may lead to the formation of ALCO. Do you use textured implants because they stay in place better? So there have been a variety of reasons of using textures across the years, but currently the use of textured implants has been for creating that anatomical shape or that teardrop shape to the breast. The texture allows the implant to adhere and stay in position because you don't want the teardrop to move or rotate and become upside down, then you have an unusual appearing breast. The texture helps keep it in position. If you do get this disease, uh, ALCL, uh, a form of lymphoma, is it treatable and what's the prognosis? Yeah, it's highly treatable. In fact, in, if it's caught in the early stages, let's say you present with a fluid collection and it's, there's markers in that fluid that may suggest that you have ALCL, it's treatable by surgery. Removal of the implant and removal of the fluid as well as the scar tissue. Uh, Three-year survival is about 93% in its early stages. And even if you have advanced disease, whether it goes into your lymph nodes or elsewhere in your body, it's very treatable with chemotherapy. Let's talk about BII because recently a celebrity came out and said, I have BII, which is what takes it off into a whole other level. So explain to us, first of all, what BII is. So BII is very different from ALCL. BII is breast implant illness. And it is a term used by women who have breast implants and have described themselves having symptoms related to breast implants. Now, these symptoms can be varied across from being very benign to very actually concerning symptoms. They can range from rashes uh, to skin changes to body odor all the way to cardiac symptoms or heart symptoms, neurologic symptoms, or even hormonal changes. So there's a wide spectrum of symptoms we have to understand that BII is not a medically recognized disease. Now, that doesn't mean that these symptoms should be ignored. They actually need to be evaluated by, by our physicians. There's no one studying BII? There's, it's all just anecdotal? No, no. Our, our professional society, such as the American Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgery, is doing research around BII. We recognize that patients who have implants may have symptoms. Uh, as you as you may not know, but back in 1999, the Institute of Medicine looked at all the studies re- involving silicone and possible association with disease. And through their studies and reviewing all the literature at that time, there was no relationship with silicone and any type of these symptoms. 
That's not to say that these women don't have real issues, because they do. They're reporting symptoms, and they still need to be evaluated. So the, the symptoms are, are very widely. Uh, is there, if you see a woman like this, and she says, you know, I really don't want my implants out, is there anything that you can do from a medical standpoint for treatment? Well, I think they need a complete evaluation. You may, have, you may need to get a rheumatologist consult. You may need to get the appropriate diagnostic testing. I don't think as a plastic surgeon, if I said, we're going to remove your implants, that that's going to take care of your issues that you're reporting. I there's nothing to say or evidence that would prove that. But when it does, then do you consider that to be placebo, or do you say, oh, well, this patient did, in fact, have BII? We, we, we don't have enough evidence to say either yeah. way. That's the problem with the whole situation. Right. It is a difficult problem. Some have said that this they think this is an autoimmune disease. What, what does that mean? So your body is recognizing that that implant is not you. And it says, that's not me. I need to fight it off and kind of wall it off from the rest of you. And by it forms, your body is trying to fight that. And that's what an autoimmune does. It's trying to fight something that's not a part of you normally. Hmm. Interesting problem. Does it do that with like a hip when you get a hip, you know, implant there or if you get a new valve? Does your body do that regardless? Right. Your body recognizes anything that's not part of you, whether Mm -hmm. it's a breast implant, a hip implant, a cheek implant, even a dental implant. There's inflammation that occurs because your body says this is not part of me. And that's a normal response. Now, some people respond more aggressively. And that's when they get into issues regarding these uh, implants. It's a bit confusing because I always thought the term autoimmune meant the body was attacking itself. Uh, and this is a, is a foreign body. So it's a sort of an inflammatory response. And it didn't, doesn't make sense to me that people would call it an autoimmune disease. Right. I mean, it is kind of it is an unusual. But you're, it's your own body fighting uh, a problem within your body. Okay. Because this is becoming more widely known um, Again, just even because of the actress. What should a woman do if she is thinking, oh, maybe this is what's wrong with me? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer that in a moment. But let's look at what's happening. A celebrity comes out and says, you know, I've got illness related to my breast. We don't have proof that there's there. And there's right. actually a large social media following. In fact, there's a Facebook group that over 70,000 women mm-hmm. that are part of this. Now, that's not saying that this is not a real problem, but that's what's increasing the awareness right. of BII. As far as if a patient presents with concerns of BII, we have a, a really a long discussion with them about let's find out if there's any other issues that may cause this before we head to surgery to remove your implants. Because as a plastic surgeon, I can't tell you removing your implants will change your prognosis or change your symptoms. All right. Our guest is Mayo Clinic Jacksonville plastic surgeon Dr. Sarv Turkanda. Time for a short break. When we come back, we will talk about reconstructive options following mastectomy. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is plastic surgeon Dr. Sarv Turkanda from the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville. We've talked about ALCL, the disease that's associated with textured implants. Uh, we've talked about BII, and uh, it's a confusing, difficult to deal with disease. And now it's time to talk about reconstruction. So if a woman has breast cancer, elects to have a mastectomy or a bilateral mastectomy, meaning prophylactic on the opposite, side, they come to you uh, to talk about reconstructive options. Tell us about that conversation. So that 
conversation is a really a, a fairly lengthy conversation, but we start off by talking about implant reconstruction or just reconstruction in general. And I start off by saying, you know, if you take reconstruction, you can kind of think of it in three different categories. The first would be implants. The second would be moving tissue from one part of your body to another, considered a flap reconstruction. And the third would be combining the two types, both an implant and a flap. So you could take those three categories. If you look at all the reconstruction across the United States, the most common way of doing it is using implants. It's the most straightforward way. It can sometimes be done in one stage, but other times it may require two surgeries to complete the reconstruction. So that's where I usually start the discussion. After a mastectomy, there may be enough space to do a reconstruction. And in that case, a patient can go straight to an implant for the reconstruction. Wow. Many times there's not enough space to put an implant. So we have to create that space. And the way we do that, we use a medical device called a tissue expander. Essentially, it's a medical-grade balloon. It allows us to stretch the muscle or skin or both if necessary and then eventually create the space to hold an implant. So at the second surgery, we're going to take that medical balloon out and then put in the uh, permanent implant for reconstruction. So it's a woman that ultimately decides, but from your standpoint, what factors would influence you to recommend one type of reconstruction, implants, versus another flap reconstruction? So it really looks, we look at their anatomy. If you're a very thin individual and don't have much tissue, meaning skin, fat, to recreate a breast, then you may, your only option may be an implant. Let's say you're a very thin lady and you want to be a small breast uh, size, then an implant would be an ideal reconstruction. On the other hand, if you have enough tissue, meaning fat and skin and muscle in another location, such as your abdomen or your tummy, that can be moved to create a breast. Uh, now, there's two types of flap reconstructions, pedicled versus what we call free tissue transfer. Pedicle is we leave it connected to its blood supply and we're moving the tissue to another location. So you, you can actually get tissue from the abdomen and move it all the way up to the breast and we, keep its blood vessels intact? We can. We use the muscle that we typically call a six-pack. We use one of the, one half of it, <laughs> the, the three-pack on one side, and move the blood, supplement muscle, blood vessel and muscle with the flap up to create the breast. Everybody has an abdominal muscle, though. It would make sense to me that you would do that before you would do an implant. So there are reasons, right? Some people have had previous surgeries on their abdomen, mm -hmm. are not candidates. Oh. But on the other hand, that doesn't still remove you from a flap because we, the technology is advanced now where we can do microvascular surgery where we can isolate the blood vessels, divide those blood vessels that feed that tissue, and then connect it up to new blood vessels up near the breast. So now you have a natural breast that's made up of your own tissue, and you don't have the issues with implants at that point. I just am curious... Of the patients that uh, you see, and I suppose you're seeing them because they want to do reconstruction, are there women who are having mastectomy that are electing not to do anything? You know, there is, is that increasing? I think it's been a steady state, and I think as you know, as we're seeing these recent controversies that are coming out, mm -hmm. I think we'll see a few more that may change. But in general, you know, it's part of a woman's body image. And they want to re want to restore that body image. So I still think we're going to s see it continue with reconstruction, but we'll still have a few patients that don't want reconstruction. The nice thing is they know exactly what they get. 
you know, they know they're not going to have a breast, and they're very, very satisfied with that. If they want a natural reconstruction or a flap reconstruction and the abdomen is not available to move or to transplant, there's other places that you can get this tissue from, aren't there? Yes, you can get it from the buttock, you can get it from the thigh, but you have to have enough volume or size to create a, a breast. If you're a woman and, and you want a D-cup-sized breast, you may not have enough tissue from the thigh, so that may Mm-hmm. may move you toward the buttock area or even back to the abdomen. And you said sometimes you use a combination of the two, so you're talking about using both an implant and a flap. Let's say you've had a abdominal surgery. Now that precludes using that. But a lot of times we can take muscle from your back and skin with that, move that forward. But remember, taking that muscle and skin from the back doesn't have a lot of volume. So to create the volume, we're going to put an implant in. So let's talk now about nipple reconstruction, because oftentimes the general surgeons who do the the mastectomy part of the the procedure, removal of the breast, can spare the nipple, but sometimes they can't. And you uh, can actually reconstruct a, a nipple, right? That's correct. So a nipple reconstruction, and it's changed over the past 20 years since I've been doing breast reconstruction, we used to actually reconstruct a nipple so it would have some projection and some size to it. We use the tissue that's really located on the reconstructed breast and f- create kind of origami and fold it over to create the nipple, basically. Wow. But today, what's interesting is most women are having tattoos, professional tattoos that can actually have that three-dimensional appearance of a, a nipple. So a tattoo that actually looks like there's a nipple there, but there really isn't. Correct. Wow, you're out of business. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so uh, talk to us briefly about uh, the advantages and disadvantages of the two different uh, procedures, implants versus flap. So let's go to implants first. Well, it's very straightforward. It's a, it's a much less complex surgery compared to flap surgery. It does, the disadvantages, it requires some follow-up. It requires, quote, maintenance is what I tell my patients. We're going to have to see you yearly. We're also going to have to follow your implants, make sure they're not ruptured. You know, these are mechanical devices. They're not lifetime devices. They're going to require some exchange at some point. I think that's the largest disadvantage of having implants. Now, if you move toward having a flap reconstruction, many times you have one re- one surgery and you're done because it's your natural tissue unless you have some changes of shape or you know if you move abdominal tissue it's still abdominal tissue so if you gain weight your flap will increase in size Interesting. if you lose weight your flap will decrease in size but overall i think if you look at Long-term care, flaps do have less surgery in the uh, long term. You know, what you do is incredible. And I think the women of America who have to go through uh, breast cancer and have these reconstructive options, I think they're extremely grateful. Most women who do have a mastectomy for treatment of breast cancer undergo some type of reconstruction. And there are options, implants and flap reconstruction or a combination of the two. And the decision regarding reconstruction is one that is made by a woman after discussion with her plastic surgeon. And you've explained that very well, how you go about that conversation. Our thanks to you, Dr. Sarv Turconda, plastic surgeon from the Mayo Clinic, Jacksonville, Florida. Thank you so much. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, the importance of heart care for breast cancer patients. And the rare disease, male breast cancer. Coming up, a health minute with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
pumpkin is an annual favorite of fall, and there's a reason to make pumpkin a regular part of your meals. It's not just a flavoring, says Anya Guy, a Mayo Clinic dietitian. She says pumpkin can offer a great amount of vitamins and nutrients. So as side dishes go, Guy says pumpkin may be a better pick than sweet potatoes. One cup of cubed pumpkin provides 30 calories and less than one gram of fat, whereas the same serving of sweet potato would offer triple the amount of calories. Now, pumpkin is a great source of fiber, iron, and potassium. It's also a versatile, healthy substitute for recipes. You can use it instead of butter or oil in baking recipes. You can cube it for soups or stews. You can even puree it into pancake mixtures or try pureed pumpkin in Greek yogurt at breakfast. Guy cautions, though, if you get your puree in a can, make sure it's nothing but pumpkin. Look for 100% pure pumpkin puree without any added sugar. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We have recently learned about a new medical specialty called cardio-oncology, the field of medicine that deals with the complications of cancer treatment on the heart. Chemotherapy, radiation, and other treatments for cancer can cause a new heart problem or make existing heart problems worse. It's such an important area of concern that there is soon to be a cardio-oncology practice at the Mayo Clinic in Florida, just as there is a similar practice here in Rochester. And joining us in studio today is Dr. Jordan Ray, who is starting the cardio-oncology practice at the Mayo Clinic Florida campus. Welcome to the program. It's nice to meet you, Dr. Ray. It's nice to meet both of you. Thank you for having me. Dr. Ray, nice to have you. Thanks for coming. This specialty, cardio-oncology, why now in Florida? I think it's probably a culmination of a couple of different factors. Uh, one, a mass effect of the number of patients who've actually survived their malignancies after therapy. And we've started to recognize that five years down the road, they're starting to have complications from a cardiovascular standpoint. Uh, there's a growing number of cardiologists who have vested interest in the area as kind of matching the, the patient need. And then the bigger aspect of things is we've started to get a lot of recognition from the big societies. So the hematology oncology societies and all of the large cardiovascular societies have all endorsed this as a, a phenomenon that needs to be recognized, have, have put forth money to support research and other ventures towards that. So hematology and oncology, they are, those are both groups that treat cancers. Yes, absolutely. Is the problem, and because you're opening it now, is that you are seeing more heart problems related to cancer treatment because people are living longer or the treatments are more toxic than they used to be? I think it's probably a combination of both. Um, as newer agents are coming to the market, we are starting to recognize the importance of screening for cardiovascular disease and have recognized that there is certainly an increase in specific therapies. But I think the other hand of things has been traditionally that's not been a large focus for providers who are treating cancers. Um, it's I, probably very justified to focus on making sure the malignancy goes away and not necessarily focusing on any of the other adverse events. And so therapies, you know, two or three decades ago, that was the main focus. And now we've recognized that maybe through that process, we've experienced more cardiovascular disease. So it's probably a combination of both. It's a wonderful problem to have. When they first started treating cancer, the goal was just to keep the people alive. And now there's a population of cancer survivors that 
now we've got special medical problems. Fairly huge problem, uh, population. And you uh, had whole body radiation when I you did. were I a, had, a child of Hodgkin's lymphoma. This, let's watch his face when I say this. I had chest mantle radiation for a Hodgkin's when I was 19. And so I exactly fit in with what you're talking about. The way that I was treated uh, 30 years ago is not is not done anymore. And why is that? Uh, actually, it's completely because we've recognized the cardiovascular complications that come from that particular type of radiation therapy that mm-hmm. you received. Um, and the challenge in that specific type of radiation is that those cardiovascular manifestations are longer term. Mm-hmm. So you survive your cancer and then you see your cardiovascular issues occur as long as 30 or even 40 years later. Mm-hmm. So you could imagine this phenomenon took a long time for us to discover and then change the technique. Tracy, we've got the defibrillator right outside <laughs> no. the door, so don't worry about a thing. You it's going to be okay. It's a great... And you got a cardiologist right here. <laughs> well, and I would say, I would like to, this would be a different topic, but um, having cancer patients as patients, we have got a different mindset about what is a problem or a bother. At least that's my, I'm like, well, if the heart starts to go, then we'll deal with that problem when we get to it. Yeah, (laughs) that's actually the perspective and and concept that really drove me into this field was seeing some of these patients survive some of these monumentous occasions only to be recognized five, six years later for having yet again some more complications. It's also a fairly healthy perspective to have that cardiovascular disease is still the number one killer in the United States. It's still the number one killer of both men and women. Um, and it has a worse prognosis than most malignancies. Um, and so that problem is going to be there regardless of cancer. And in fact, in, in women who have survived breast cancer, it is the number one cause of their death uh, long term. So what do people who've gone through cancer treatment or what, what does radiation and chemotherapy do to your heart? Oh, a number of different things. I think focusing on the fact that chemotherapy most traditional chemotherapies are medications that are designed to kind of destroy cancer before it destroys you. So the the effect or pharmacological effect of these medications uh, affects both healthy and non-healthy cells. Uh, and the hope is that it just kills the cancer faster. And so a lot of traditional chemotherapies, what happens is it prevents the heart's ability to replicate. So we like to think that all cells have the ability to multiply and divide, which is true, and some do at different rates. The slower the, the heart replicates, the less likely it has effect from chemotherapy, but it's not absent. And so if, if cardiovascular cells are starting to become affected or die from these processes, then long-term complications like scar formations and things can happen, which really affect the pump function in, in general. So let's talk about breast cancer, continue that discussion, breast cancer in the heart, because that's the most common cancer in women. Their survival rate now is close to 90%. Yeah. So a majority of women are surviving breast cancer. And a recent study showed that women over the age of 45 have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease following uh, breast cancer. And, and why is that? And what problems are you seeing? And what can you do about it? So I think that's probably a combination of a few things. Uh, one, I think, important thing to focus on is the risk factors for developing breast cancer are actually very similar to the risk. There's a lot of overlap with the risk factors for cardiovascular disease. So they so, may have gotten cardiovascular disease anyway? Absolutely. So uh, there is that phenomenon that is recognized. However, there are a couple of good studies that have looked at women who have had breast cancer versus the same women who did not have breast cancer and their similar risk factors. So they're matched between the two groups. 
and the women who have had breast cancer and undergone cancer treatments have a higher risk of cardiovascular disease. So there certainly is a phenomenon from the cancer itself and maybe probably more likely from the therapies that we're giving these patients that increase their risk for cardiovascular disease. And is that both chemotherapy and radiation, or is one a bigger culprit than the other? Uh, it's it's going to be both, and the, the, the culprit is probably going to be dependent on the dose and frequency of whichever therapy you received. What about proton beam? Uh, can't they now stop the beam so that if they give uh, radiation to the left breast, uh, they can spare the heart? Yeah, I think proton beam is a, is a emerging new technology that's going to probably offer a lot of benefits to these patients. We don't quite have a lot of long-term data for that, but you're absolutely right. The theory behind proton beam therapy is that the, the, the proton or the particle we're sending bypasses a lot of structures on its path, and it then delivers its energy to a specific targeted area that the radio oncologist has kind of dictated. So if it's passing through the heart, then it's not delivering any energy through that, and then the hope would be that it doesn't cause any long-term damage. And I think that's probably going to be a mainstay. There are other different types of radio techniques that can be used beyond just proton therapy. Uh, proton therapy is still difficult to have to the masses because there are only a few centers in the country that are kind of leading that motion. So uh, traditional radio te- techniques where you have specific type of breath holding or specific type of CT-guided radio techniques can kind of push the heart out of the field of radiation and reduce it. Um, and how, when do you like to see these patients, and how long do you follow them after their cancer treatment? It's a very good question, and there's not a great straightforward answer for that, unfortunately, mostly because we don't have a lot of good long-term evidence to support any of our concepts. I personally really want to see patients who are receiving therapies, and there's a concern that there might need to be a change for therapy based on a cardiovascular outcome, because I think that plays the largest impact and role in that patient right then and there. Uh, but I certainly like seeing patients who have received therapies and are now having new symptoms and inability to exert themselves. I can't climb a flight of stairs, or I used to be an avid exerciser, and now I can't do anything that I used to do. Those are kind of heralding signs that cardiovascular disease has started. Um, and if you are somebody who has experienced chemo or radiation for some reason, seeing a cardio-oncologist to determine whether or not that falls in the purview of a complication from chemo and radiation or just a traditional standard cardiovascular disease. All right, Dr. Jordan Rafe. Now- Now, fortunately, people with cancer are living longer after diagnosis and treatment, but the treatment can cause complications later on, including heart disease. Cardio-oncologists are specialists in preventing heart problems after cancer treatment or catching them as early as possible. There is soon to be a new division of cardio-oncology at the Mayo Clinic in Florida. Director, Dr. Jordan Ray. Dr. Ray, thanks so much for being with us. I appreciate you guys having me here. Coming up, breast cancer in men. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. You know, Tracy, it is not just women who get breast cancer. It also occurs in men. Not very often, but some 2,000 cases every year in the U.S. Today's guest has recently completed a study of men with breast cancer, and she's here to share her findings and insights. She's an oncologist... That's a cancer specialist at at Mayo Clinic with a particular interest in breast cancer. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Catherine Reddy. It's good to see you again. 
Thanks so much for having me. Well, Dr. Reddy, I'm glad to hear that you're concentrating on the male population. <laughs> you know, for years, the medical profession was criticized because all we studied was men. Uh-huh. And now it seems like there are so many studies in women, which is good. But male breast cancer is still a problem. I mean, it's much less common, but men do get it. Yeah, and actually it's interesting, the the lack of research in male breast cancer in some ways mimics that the problems we used to have with lack of research in, for example, female cardiovascular disease. So we need more studies in male breast cancer. If a man has breast cancer, I would think that maybe it takes a while before it gets diagnosed because... Who thinks about men and breast cancer? And we don't get mammograms every year. Right. Exactly. Men are much more likely to be diagnosed with a larger tumor, with spread to the lymph nodes, even spread elsewhere in the body. And that's in large part because we don't have mammographic screening for men. So it really isn't until a mass becomes palpable that it could ever be diagnosed. Is a lump in a man's breast different than a lump in a woman's breast? Does it feel different? Does it present differently? Well, there's a little more likelihood for it to be close to the nipple, and so there's more likelihood of nipple involvement than there is in women. Um, Why is that? Well, it's probably, we don't, we don't fully know because this is an understudied area, but it in part probably relates to just the shape and size of the male breast. Okay. So most all of these cases are only picked up when the man discovers a lump in his breast. Exactly. Interesting. So, as you suggested, uh, oftentimes they're diagnosed later and have already spread as opposed to a female when they check their breasts regularly and they have mammograms. Right. At least over age 40 or 50, women are recommended to have mammograms, whereas men are not. Have you? What's the youngest male you've ever seen with breast cancer? I've personally not seen anyone under age 40, but breast cancers can happen. occur younger, yes. So men should check their breasts? Men should, especially if they have a family history of breast cancer or if they have a known deleterious mutation in one of the cancer-predisposing genes like BRCA, um, they should at least be aware that if they do feel an abnormality in the breast tissue or see a nipple abnormality, they definitely need to get medical attention for that. But what male would ever know that they're carrying the BRCA gene? Well, actually, if there's a female relative diagnosed with a deleterious mutation, then the relatives of that person are recommended to be tested. So there are men who know that, yes. Yeah, sister, mom, grandma. Exactly. Is it more common than it used to be, like other breast cancer? Male breast cancer uh, incidence may be increasing in some countries and not in others. Studies have been a little mixed in terms of what's happening with the incidence. The major issue isn't so much that we have a skyrocketing incidence, but more that we don't have studies that inform optimal management for these men. But you have a study. We did just complete a study. <laughs> what I would love to have, what I don't have, is a clinical trial yet. What we would, The International Male Breast Cancer Research uh, investigators would love to have to be able to launch a clinical trial to really understand what is the best treatment. The study we did was using National Cancer Database information to understand how are men being treated, how are men doing right now with with the treatments we have. But it, it isn't a clinical trial where we were able to randomize men to one treatment or another. You know, uh, you talked about in your in your study that you studied men with stage 1, 2, or 3 breast cancer. Tell us what those stages mean. And are there four stages and you didn't study those men? or? Yes, there's actually, in some ways, there are five stages. So stage 0 breast cancer means it's not invasive breast cancer. This is 
um, not possibly mm-hmm. it cannot spread elsewhere in the body, and so that's kind of a different type of breast cancer than the invasive breast cancers that we think of with stage one to four. Stage four breast cancer is cancer that has spread elsewhere in the body already, and so in general we cannot cure that. We we control that, but we focused on stage one to three to understand the curative intent management of male breast cancer. And tell us what one, two, and three mean. So. Stage one versus two versus three basically relates to how big is the cancer in the breast, has it spread to lymph nodes under the arm, and then our new cancer staging, um, which is uh, relatively recent, also takes into account the biology of the cancer. So it's a kind of complex algorithm, probably um, difficult to explain on the radio. but uh, The biology of the cancer, meaning how nasty it looks under the microscope. And whether it's hormonally sensitive, whether it overexpresses a um, receptor called HER2-NU. So th- those th- are the same in men and women, ER, PR, HER2? So men's cancers, interestingly, are more likely to be hormonally sensitive than women's cancers. Huh. Why? That seems unusual. We do not understand why, um, but it's been pretty consistent across all studies of male breast cancer that there's a very high rate of hormonal sensitivity in men's cancers. Tell us more about your study. Well, we we were able to assess, uh, and I worked with multiple co-investigators on this, Dr. Sid Yadav, who's one of our fellows, was actually the lead author on the study. We were able to assess nearly 11,000 men who were diagnosed in the United States and whose cancers were captured in this national cancer database. This includes uh, more than 70% of all the cancer diagnoses in the U.S. and includes cases diagnosed at more than 1,500 sites. And by looking at how these men were treated and how they did prognostically, we were able to identify some disparities and some predictors of better and worse prognosis. We were reassured that it looks like the treatments that men are getting are improving their prognosis. So we found that men who had received chemotherapy, men who had received endocrine therapy, did do better. And that's reassuring because, as I said, we don't have clinical trials like we do in women to say certainly that, yes, this is beneficial versus not in a man. So when we're able, we, we really are left with this kind of data um, to guide our treatments. Which men had a worse prognosis? Unfortunately, non-white men had a worse prognosis, um, and uh, men who um, had, so there were sociodemographic disparities, Mm. basically uh, men who had fewer financial resources based on um, variables that we used to determine that, and unfortunately that's consistent across in female breast cancer. Also, we tend to see that there is a relationship between financial resources and better prognosis. Um, and so certainly old, and older men also seem to do worse. So we, there are some areas where we think we'd be able to identify need for intervention and maybe gaps in care that we could address. Do you, give, do you recommend if a man has got a history, a sister or a grandmother or something, do they need to have mammograms? How, do you give a man a mammogram? Interestingly, guidelines Too from... Too painful for a man to talk. <laughs> Listen, <No>. small-chested <laughs> women understand trying to give a man a mammogram. That's all I'm going to say about it. If a man... Uh, family history alone is usually not enough reason for a mammogram. But if a man... Um, there might be certain circumstances where this should be discussed, um, depending on how extensive the family history is and what the... Um, whether a genetic mutation, a deleterious genetic mutation, is known in the man, there actually uh, there's a lot of need for 
national guidelines that are specific to male breast cancer, and our, the American Society of Clinical Oncology is working on developing more uh, in-depth guidelines for men. All right. Well, only 1% of breast cancers occur in men, but it's just as challenging to treat as the same disease in women. The overall survival for men with breast cancer, about the same as women, but the prognosis is worse for non-white males and also men who live in low-income areas. But there is hope for the future, and as you said, we're doing better with treating male breast cancer, just as with women. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic oncologist Dr. Catherine Ruddy. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. And that's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.com. MayoClinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.